Thanks to Bombfell for supporting Motley Fool Answers. Bombfell is an online personal styling service for men that helps find the right clothes for you. Get $25 off your first purchase at bombfell.com slash fool. That's B-O-M-B-F-E-L-L dot com slash fool. This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and my partner in crime is Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool. In this week's episode, we're going to look at the growing trend of death in the consumer goods sector, <laughs> with help from Motley Fool Industry Focus's Vince Shen. We're also going to answer your question about financial trust issues as you head into retirement. <laughs> All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. It's time for Answers Answers, and today's question comes from Becky in Arizona. Becky writes... I am retired already, but I married a younger guy. You go, Becky! <laughs> so, we have a few years yet before he retires. When he does leave the workaday world, he will have a substantial 401k to move somewhere. At least in my book, 700000 is substantial. I'm shaking in my shoes. I think I should handle the money myself, but I'm scared I'll mess up. But I also don't want to just hand it over to someone else to take care of it either. I may have trust issues here. I have investing-induced rigor mortis. What baby steps should I take now to prepare for the big bang of bucks that's five to seven years away? Well, Becky, $700,000 in a 401k is indeed substantial. So, according to Fidelity, the average 401k balance for workers in their 50s is $152,000. Average oh, balance wow. for work. I know for workers in their 60s is $167,000. So your husband's done a good job of saving. Young and rich. <laughs> so and it probably took him many years to build that up, decades even. And I could totally understand how you'd be nervous when it comes time to manage that in yourself. And when when you think about when you're saving for retirement, you get a little help, right? There's often some education along with the 401k. Maybe someone from the 401k company comes over and does a workshop. You have target retirement funds. And if the market goes down, you at least tell yourself, well, it's a buying opportunity and all my future contributions, I'll be able to buy stocks cheaper. But when you're in retirement, it's different because you're not getting any help. There's very little education about it. And if the portfolio goes down, that feels like a real unrecoverable loss. So I totally get the investing-induced rigor mortis, which I think is a great phrase, by the way. And you're going to steal it from her, aren't you, for another Rule Your Retirement article? That's going to be my next book. Anyways, so here's what I suggest you do. Create a practice portfolio. Go to an online portfolio tracker. One of my favorites is Morningstar. And just set up a portfolio and manage it as if your husband has retired. Um, come up with a model portfolio from any of your readings some books. If you're a member of the Rural Retirement Service, I have model portfolios there. But you don't have to get it right, right off the bat. Just create something. Then keep an investing journal, which we've talked about in previous episodes, about why you pick certain investments, why you decide to sell certain investments. Um, you also, I would recommend that you also decide how much you're going to take out of it every year. And then once that time of year comes, you decide which investments that you will sell in this practice portfolio. So if you do this for a few years, practicing and learning, by the time it comes for your husband to retire, you'll have a good sense of whether you want to do this on your own or whether you want to hire a, fi a financial advisor. The good news is this isn't an all or nothing decision. He may have one account now, but you can roll it into multiple IRAs. So you can roll it over to an account with a financial planner, but you can manage some of it yourself. You could actually even roll it over to a couple of financial advisors. I know a lot of people do that because they don't want all their money with one advisor. They want some advisor diversification. So a couple of financial planners, you handling some of it on your own. And then as the years go by, you might decide, I'm ready to do it all myself, or I'm kind of tired of this. I'm retired. I want to take it easy. 
and you go with a financial planner. But if you start practicing now, keep learning along the way, I'm confident that you'll make the right decision when your husband retires in a few years. Thanks to Bombfell for sponsoring today's episode. What is Bombfell, you may be asking? Well, it's an online personal stylist that helps men find the right clothes. After completing a simple questionnaire, you are matched one-on-one with a dedicated personal stylist who handpicks every piece. Your stylist will email you his or her selections, after which you'll have 48 hours to make any changes or even cancel altogether. Pay for the clothes you keep and send back the rest at no charge. Bro, you got to take it for a test drive. I'm jealous. <laughs> well, the next time we do something like this, you can choose my clothes, okay? Uh, but it worked out very well. You go and you, you indicate what you're looking for, casual or more formal, give your size, color preferences, things like that, and then the stylist sends you the choices. I like the three that I got sent. Uh, through email, so I waited for them to show up. I loved two of them. One of them, I wasn't as, my frankly, my wife didn't like quite as much. <laughs> <laughs> so I kept two and sent the other one back. It's easy because it come, you have the envelope, you have the, the label, and you just put it back in the mail. So it was very easy. So, Bombfell is the only styling service that does not charge a styling fee or a subscription fee. I know how much you hate fees, bro. <laughs> and we have a special offer just for listeners of the show. For $25 off your first purchase, go to bombfell.com slash fool. That's B-O-M-B-F-E-L-L dot com slash fool. Everything must go. Going out of business, going out of business, going out of business. 50% off original retail price. Skip the middle man. Don't set up a lesson. How do we do it? How do we do it? Volume, volume, turn up the volume. This week, we're continuing our series on deep dives into sectors of the stock market, thanks to the good folks over at Motley Fool Industry Focus Podcast. And this week, we're looking at the consumer goods section, thanks to Vince Shen, although I'm going to start calling him Vin, because it's so (laughs) cool. He edits the consumer goods section content for Fool.com and hosts Motley Fool Industry Focus every Tuesday. Vince, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much. You know, I'm just going to end up calling you Vince, because that's actually your name. That's going to be tough for you to keep it up. But I'm I'm going to make this happen. Before we get into the consumer goods section, I want to hear about the path that led you to the Motley Fool. How how did you come to be working here? Sure. Ten, ten feet from me. First off, uh, thanks for having me on the show. I love Motley Fool Answers. Aww. I've learned a ton Aww. from your show. Thank you. So it's really cool to be in studio with you guys. Um, but my path to the Fool, I think, was through uh, kind of realizing that in my previous job, which was investment banking, kind of typical Wall Street affair. Um, I did three years there, uh, felt kind of chained to my desk at times, literally chained to my desk at times. Literally? And, uh, no, but in terms of the <laughs> hours that we spent there, it certainly felt that way. I would way. not be surprised though, if literally, at some point in time, someone was chained you know, to a major desk. major vitamin D deficiency oh. from not being outside. But uh, th- I learned a lot in that time, and the people were great. It was really cool to work on IPOs and um, these uh, different uh, equity offerings. And uh, again, the people I met were so sharp. It was a cool environment to be in, but not really uh, something I could see myself in long term. And so I, when I left my banking job, I didn't know what to do, but I need, knew that I needed to get away. So I spent about half a year traveling um, in South America and Southeast Asia. Oh, cool. And uh, this also kind of coincided with the time that I would meet and start, or not meet, but start dating my uh, wife to be. You had an eat, love, pray sort of situation <laughs> going on. So, you know, the first place that we went was in Ecuador. I got to meet her whole family, literally oh. that entire side of her family. It was quite overwhelming, uh, especially because my Spanish is, is, tar- is no terrible. No bueno. Exactly. Um, But coming back, um, I first started looking at jobs traditionally in uh, the financial sector where I was. And I realized it doesn't make sense. I just left, ran away, literally, 
coming back, going through the same thing because I felt comfortable there. But I moved down to D.C., which is where my wife is, and I just started looking at different uh, opportunities out there, kind of discovered the Fool. I'd read some content uh, on Fool.com before, and when I read more about the culture, you know, obviously, best place to work, things like that, seemed really appealing. And when I interviewed, kind of get a sense of the place, I realized I still get to use some of my finance background, and then... I get to experience go from you know a huge bank to a smaller company, a much less formal atmosphere, and more uh, sunlight, fewer more chains. sunlight, and it was it's been amazing. Oh well, I enjoy working with you too, and and you literally do sit not chained, but like fifteen feet from me, pretty yeah. much. So. <laughs> All right, so today we're going to talk about the consumer goods sector, and it's massive. Yes, what is it made of? So I had a hard time trying to think about how to present this because we call the show Consumer Goods. It covers consumer and retail. So you have to think about the side with the companies that actually make all the goods, and then also the side where, in terms of how it's sold when you go to the store. Um, I looked at some formal industry classifications from uh, the FTSE, so they kind of break things down for you. And the easiest way I can say it is, you know, you have your food and beverage companies, you have your personal and household household goods, and you can imagine how massive that category alone Toys, is. Toys, clothes, pots and pans. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, you have retail, and that which is the sell side of it, I guess. Uh, you have media and entertainment, and then travel and leisure. So hotels uh, technically includes airlines as well, but I will let Sean O'Reilly take that one on the industrial side. <laughs> but uh, you can imagine it covers. Uh, all, all kinds of companies. And I really like this space personally because it's a lot of companies that are household names that right. we encounter every day. Uh, made it very accessible for me when I first started getting into it. I used to cover oil and gas. And this is frankly much more interesting. Yeah, it's much more relatable. And because, like you said, they're household names. It also seems like a sector where, as an individual investor, you might potentially get overweighted. But maybe it doesn't matter because the it is so broad. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd say that. Going into, especially for I think for beginning investors, and this includes myself too, where when I first started looking at stocks, you know, you want to go to what you're familiar with. And I had heard from people like, oh, invest in what you know, invest in things that you see. Like if you go to a restaurant and the lines are really long, that's a pretty good sign. Maybe you can look at them and see how their financials are, do a little bit more due diligence, and that's a potential stock pick for you. Um, You don't want, you never want to be too overweight, I think, in any single industry. But uh, fortunately, this one's big enough, I think, if you look at the subsectors. Within it, you can kind of hedge your bets that way and diversify so that they're not all trending in the exact same direction, I think. Yeah, well, these also seem like uh, companies where if the economy isn't doing so well, they may be the first hit. Mm-hmm. You know, like if you're going to, if you get laid off your job, you're not going to go watch the latest Marvel movie. Maybe, sure. I don't know, maybe you are. Or like, eat out as much for that matter. Or eat out as much. Or yeah. buy that new suit or a new outfit or whatever it may be. So. Yeah. So, uh, do you get concerned about that when people start worrying about the economy, or do you just like stay the course? I think there are certain companies within this space uh, are good, uh, I guess, counters in terms of that kind of cyclical environment. Um, but overall, it's definitely a risk factor that you should be aware of. But if you're investing with a long-term horizon, uh, long-term horizon, which obviously we recommend here very often. Uh, you can kind of ride that out, and I think overall, you know, in terms of consumer spending, uh, the growth that we've seen overall is is a long term trend that you can kind of uh, take some uh, relief in in terms of looking at the companies in this space. And in those types of situations too, there's often substitution. So while people may not go out to eat as much, that means that they're buying more groceries yep. at yeah, home. Yeah, sure. Um, and I think, if I remember correctly, things like sales of 
like alcohol actually goes up in recessions and things like that. So there's some counter trends. Yeah, there. you're hedging within your within the sector. <laughs> it's right. great. Yeah. Right. It's surprising too. Sometimes some industries where you think it would definitely be hit in a cycle, or just by uh, you know tobacco companies, for instance, uh, you would think that because people are smoking less and less, they'd really be hurting. But they've managed to kind of work their business, raise prices, go international, and focus on you know. Uh, uh, markets abroad, they've been able to actually, you know, still pay out a really healthy dividend to their shareholders and uh, basically buck a trend where I think a lot of people otherwise believe that oh, tobacco companies on their way out. It's like well, actually they're quite strong. So, all right. So today we're going to dig into five death trends in <laughs> to watch in this sector. <laughs> and the reason why I'm calling it five death trends is, and I think probably the Molly Fool is just as guilty of this as any other company, yeah. we will often have headlines that will say, the death of blank. And so, it just so happens that there's a lot of death going on in your sector. Apparently. Apparently. Yeah. We're, yeah. So, we'll get, we'll, uh, we'll get into each of these. So, the first one we're going to look at is the death of retailers. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Funny enough, we actually just had a show on Industry Focus kind of talking about this and what the the lay of the land is for retailers a a few weeks ago. Um, I think it's obvious to most people who do any shopping that there's been a really big shift in terms of the retail landscape in the past decade or two, and a lot of that's been facilitated by technology and the idea that, uh, you know, according to Comscore, over 80% of mobile phone owners in the US have a smartphone. And you know, only ten years ago that was three percent. So basically, you have a the world's shopping cart in your hand at all times. Um, you hear about Amazon and e-commerce, and that has really come through in terms of store closures and bankruptcies. So I found some of the big chains that have declared bankruptcy just in the past few years. Uh, places like Gander Mountain, uh, Payless Shoes, Sports Authority, uh, Radio Shack, Circuit City, and. That is generally, I feel like, what people refer to when they talk about death retail is just a sea change of retailers having to adapt to e-commerce and and basically the fact that when consumers shop, they want to do it exactly they uh, the way they want, where they want to, and they want to get it whether they pick it up in the store, deliver it to their home. There's just a lot of different options that uh, these companies have to kind of anticipate now. And Amazon is the go the go to of online shopping, but are there other retailers that are successfully making the move from bricks and mortars to online? Like who do you think has done the best job in not dying? There are certainly a lot of companies that have tried. Um, and if you're big enough, if you're a Walmart, for example, you can just buy the guys who are doing really well. So they made an acquisition recently for Jet.com, and this is a company started by a really sharp guy who knows, I feel like, the e-commerce space really well. His previous company they started was acquired by Amazon, no less. And this, the way they've approached it is, you know, people want that value and that convenience. So when you go on to their site, uh, if when you buy something, they will lower the price if you give up returns, if you pay with a debit card, if you uh, decide to forego, uh, you know, speedier form of shipping or something along those lines. And uh, they can, and if you buy more than one, for example, it's also cheaper. So that's an idea. Uh, that's a interesting, I guess, approach. And when you're that size, um, other companies, I think. Uh, especially in the apparel space, like Nike and Under Armour, they have also really embraced the idea that you know the online platform gives them a lot of options. Where hey, they can offer customized shoes if you go through uh, their uh, go through their site. You can kind of choose the colors you want and charge a premium on that. And they also uh, usually enjoy pretty good margins from that uh, from that medium. 
So uh, those are just a few quick examples, I think, of the companies that have approached it uh, pretty well. And you know, uh, uh, the fact that Walmart, I think, is still kind of trying to figure out exactly how they're going to survive long term. Um, they're definitely spending the money uh, and investing in those efforts. All right, the next death is the sorry the next death trend to watch in <laughs> consumer goods is the death of toys. This is so sad. Aww. Yeah, this one breaks my heart. Uh, I feel like I'm right around the age where my childhood was still more traditional. I played with a lot of action figures and games like and when I was a kid. But when I see my friends with kids now. They're always on some type of electronic device, plugged into the internet at all times. Um, And you see this play out with some of the industry leaders. Mattel, for example, um, has struggled for years because some of their, I guess, uh, flagship brands, which is includes Barbie and American Girls dolls, just are not selling like the way that they used to. Uh, But as it turns out, the toy industry overall is growing. So this (laughs) is kind of a fake death. Oh, okay. And um, greatly just, exaggerated. Well, just like retail is kind of a fake death because certain people are approaching it very well. For toys, there's still segments that uh, these companies are seeing a lot of success in, and I think uh, a big one uh, from 2016 was in games and puzzles. So before you had Battleship, you had Risk and Monopoly. Now you have all these new games. Uh, personally, in my collection, I have stuff like Ticket to Ride, King yep. of Tokyo, mm-hmm. Sushi Go. These are really cool games. A lot of people talk about it being like a golden age for games and puzzles, and they're seeing a lot of success there. And at the same time, you know, in terms of uh, dolls and action figures, companies still do really well when they partner with the right uh, intellectual property. So if you go to Hollywood, you know, obviously Star Wars sells a ton of toys. Disney princesses sell a ton of toys. So the companies that can lock down those lock down those licenses, those uh, those agreements with the right uh, entertainment companies, the right IP, they still do really well. And then also you have toy companies kind of going to video games. Lego has done a great job with this in that. They have movies, they have TV shows, they have their video games. Their two major theatrical releases have, I think they've grossed almost $800 million in the box office. So uh, it's just, I think this is definitely one where we talked about before the show, it's more of an evolution, I think, than a a true death. Yeah. All right. The next death is the death of cable. Okay. This one is a, I will call a slow, gradual dying process. (laughs) Because <laughs> something we should all be familiar with. <laughs> uh, I would focus here on streaming services like Netflix and Amazon Prime. You know, they basically change our expectations, right, for what we expect our television to do and to, to show us. We're tired of ads. We want to binge watch an entire series in a weekend. And cable companies, I think, are seeing the results of this, but it's very slow. So if you look at some of the data from this industry, I pulled these numbers from eMarketer, the number of households subscribed to, to traditional pay TV services, so think cab- uh, cable, satellite TV, uh, they're forecasted to, to decline about 1% to 2% uh, each year oh, going, yeah. uh, in the for, for the foreseeable future, whereas on the flip side, the non-pay TV households, they're growing in about the high single digits, and they're accelerating. And the thing, But the, when you look at that, you see, okay, one side is uh, declining slowly, the other side's growing very quickly, it's going to start flipping soon, but you have to look at where they're starting from. There's about 100 million paid, traditional pay TV households, there's about 20 million non-pay TV households. So, it's going to take a long time for those numbers to balance out. And it, the shift you're also seeing is you have people who are cutting the cord, and you also have people who never signed up for cable in the first place. So they're just kind of missing out on that side of the market. Um, and then I feel like 
there's a slow death kind of for the box office too and for Hollywood especially theater operators where you know you see these big blockbusters come out uh, you know they'll make over a billion dollars but in actuality each year for the past 15 years ticket sales have been declining mm. and I think it's just because the entertainment options now when you have a Netflix you have an Amazon Prime or you have all these new video games or whatever it may be it's not as compelling anymore to go to the theater but even in that case they kind of find ways to balance themselves where they'll sell you a more expensive ticket because of IMAX or there's more options at the concession stand I feel like when I was a kid always popcorn and a soda now it's like you can get chicken tenders and you can get (laughs) wings and all this crazy stuff you can have a whole meal in the theater or you can pay for an assigned seat and so even though uh, ticket sales have declined I think about 20% in the past 15 years ticket prices have gone up 50% and that makes up a lot for that difference Um, and that's the slow death on that side now uh, it's such a cliche to say content is king, but speaking of being in the golden age of games, we're also in a golden age of television. So Absolutely. really, is it all about your content strategy? Is that who's going to win here? The, if Netflix can keep producing stuff that's compelling and interesting, that's original, is that really where you need to focus? I think so. I you know people are willing to pay uh, for that quality content. I think Netflix and Amazon Prime are perfect examples of that, um, where. Amazon will pour billions of dollars into their content creation, and they know that it's not always going to, there's no direct line in terms of that return on investment. Mm-hmm. But the more people they can sign on to their Prime membership, they know that Prime members tend to spend more, quite a bit more than non Prime members on Amazon, and that's their, their ticket, right? And for Netflix, you know, both these companies won their first Academy Awards uh, in February, mm-hmm. so earlier this year. And I think that lends them this legitimacy and also the idea that, hey, maybe in the future, movies don't have to go to AMC or whatever theater chain it might be. You know, They'll t- release a really strong movie straight to the streaming service and People will want to, you know, pay that monthly subscription to get access to access content like that. So I definitely think there is uh, there is um, credibility in the idea that, you know, that where the good content is is where people ultimately flock to, and it, when they can access it the way they want, you can watch your Netflix on your computer, on your TV, on your mobile phone if you're traveling. That's a lot for the bigger, slower moving, you know, traditional pay TV companies like cable companies to adapt to, but they are also investing a lot of money here because they see this shift happening. Yeah. All right. The next trend to watch is the death of hotels. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Okay, this one is another fake death. This is one that millennials get all the blame for yes, too. Absolutely. Uh, I want to look at Airbnb here. It's just a really cool startup. Unfortunately we cannot invest in them quite yet. No. Um, it's still a private company. Now worth an estimated thirty billion dollars, so wow. the only it's only behind Marriott International in terms what? of size. Are you serious? Yes, and um, you hear a lot of people talk about Airbnb disrupting the hotel industry, kind of like Amazon has disrupted e-commerce or Tesla is kind of shaking things up for automakers, but that really doesn't play out in terms of uh, you know the actual industry dynamics because um, we are in a period right now where travel and tur- tourism overall is enjoying. Incredible, really strong growth. Um, so what you have is you know, a tide lifts all the ships kind of situation. So Airbnb hotels together are just benefiting from this worldwide trend. Uh, you know, international tourist spending in the U.S. even with all of our crazy politics and stuff right now was at record levels so far in 2017. Mm-hmm. And the effect Airbnb has on the industry, if you look at a specific market, it's kind of mixed. Uh, there was a study for Texas when Airbnb entered that market. They looked at uh, hotel prices in Dallas and Austin, and they determined the effect 
on hotel revenue was about eight to ten percent. But and that's mostly because of the heightened competition. Hotels can't raise their rates quite as much. But the effect is really on only the lowest, uh, the more budget-based mm, accommodations. Because right. you think about a typical Airbnb, or, you know, some people will go for the the chalet or the castle, high income. But a lot of cases, you know, people who are okay paying less for a shared space kind of accommodation, which is Airbnb, which Airbnb is known for. And so, if you are marketing yourself or if your main clientele is business clients who are traveling to meetings or just uh, you know wealthier uh, customers in general you're not going to feel that pinch nearly as much and you know merit shares for example are up almost 200% in the past 5 years wow. their revenue is growing incredibly and i think hotel companies in general are for people who are not familiar with them they operate differently than we think because a marriott avoids actually pouring in millions of dollars to build these hotels, they lend out their banner and their brand name, this established name, put Marriott on your hotel, people know that brand, they are comfortable staying in Marriott properties, and they just, it's like a franchise, they uh, get fees for managing the property and for using the Marriott name. So, Hmm. that gives them some stability and allows them to kind of grow without these huge capital spends and actually building properties, which might take four years. Mm -hmm. So, uh, this is definitely a case where uh, I think, ultimately, Airbnb and traditional hotel companies can definitely play. There's plenty of business out there. All right, and the final death we're going to talk about is the death of restaurants. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. I think right now it's more so just that we have more options than ever. And if anything, it's just the way we get our food and our experience in the restaurant that will change. Um, so, you know, you have Grubhub, it's a $4 billion company. They have 50,000 partner restaurants in over, uh, I think, about 1,100 cities. And that's just another option, right? But Wait, when Grubhub, it, they deliver, do they deliver? What does Grubhub do? So, Grubhub is the. I'm so not cool. Grubhub is the oh, service no, you're cool. you're all right. that basically partners with the restaurants. So, they don't make any food themselves, yeah. but they set up the platform so that if you are a mom and pop store and you want to uh, start. Delivering because you're in an urban area, it's it's feasible for you. And so when somebody lo- signs into Grubhub, they'll see your restaurant mm. on that list within a you know whatever five mile radius or whatever it is that you set. I used to use Seamless, which has combined with Grubhub. Okay. Um, I used to use Seamless all the time when I was in New York. Chained to your desk. Chained to my because desk because you couldn't go every out. night. Yeah. So when I stopped using it after I moved, I got so many emails afterwards because I went from being a you know probably. Thousands of dollars a year. Platinum gold star exactly. member, yeah. Um, and on the restaurant side, in terms of the experience and how that's changing, it's more so uh, just, I think, how technology is being employed. I talked about this a little bit on Industry Focus last week, but what it comes down to is you see more kiosks, you see tablets at tables, and you see things like mobile ordering and companies like Starbucks. Um, I don't know how often you guys go there, but it's very popular now. Place your order, show up, it's ready to go, you pick it up. And again, this comes down to kind of the retail side too, where customers and consumers in general just want the things that they buy exactly when and how they want it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so whether it's um, a delivery company like Grubhub or it's a, um, uh, a mobile ordering experience or just when you show up, you, if you don't want to deal with anybody, you want to just put your order in on a tablet like a Panera Bread, for example, you can do that. And uh, it's just, I think it 
not only standardizes, I think, some of the customer service experiences, but a lot of people are talking about how uh, in the next 20, 25 years, as this technology becomes better and better and uh, more commonplace, it'll have a big impact on ultimately, uh, you know, a lot of retail workers, how that's going to change the dynamic. They already have machines that can flip your burgers, prepare a burger Mm. entirely, and they're testing things like this on the West Coast. So it'll be really interesting to see. But, you know, obviously restaurants not going anywhere um, otherwise. I think I just had a little bit of an epiphany. What's that? Well, so for all of these, I've been like, well, it's also kind of the golden age of restaurants. And I think I just realized that one person's death of is another person's like golden age and awesome step forward in progress. Yeah. So it's all a matter of whether you're holding on to the past or looking to embrace the future. Absolutely. It is a fantastic time to be a person who eats in this city. There's so many good restaurants. <laughs> so, so many good restaurants. So, I think, so I think everyone in this eat city and eats. Watch and ah, it's a good time to be alive. It's a great Despite time. To be alive. Despite all the death. Despite all the death, it's <laughs> the a great death. time to be alive. <laughs> good to be alive right about now. done talking about the consumer goods sector, so let's see how much you guys really know about some of these big trends in consumer goods. We're going to play a little bit of closest without going over. If That's like a price is right. There's probably a price is right name for this game, but I'm going to give you a scenario and ask for a number, and whoever is the closest without going over wins. Ready? Ready. First one. You'll get. You'll figure this out. It's fine. Why head to the Shire when you can stay in this round one-room Adobe Airbnb in Geyserville, California, called the Hobbit Home? While the room itself is barely big enough to hold a double bed, which, by the way, is described as for those of you who are familiar with the concept of earthing, the mattress is on an earth pad, so you are being grounded as you sleep, which is very healthy. Oh my gosh! <laughs> it also boasts a living roof with grass and herbs growing to make wheat juice, wheatgrass juice, because, again, we're in California. So, <laughs> other benefits, the bathroom is less than a minute's walk away. Also, it's in within minute's walk to a temple dedicated to Isis, uh, the god, not, not the Islamic <laughs> state. I just realized that. That would be horrible. <laughs> no. The god, the not the Egyptian, 1970s t- TV show, either. Huh? The Egyptian god. So, you're not going to find that at a Hilton. How much does it cost to stay in the Hobbit home a night? Closest without going over. I, I wouldn't pay much personally, but I'm going to say $199. Wheatgrass premium. I'm going to say per night, $250. Oh, you guys, good news for the low, low price of $100 a night. What? You can stay at the Hobbit Hall. Oh, that makes you, me feel a little bit better. You also can sleep in the grass. It's also a sanctuary. It's also a, a, a rare animal sanctuary. So there's like ocelots and. Oh, in your hut? No, not in your hut. They live in their own place. Scoot over, ocelot. All right, next one. As reported, the, oh, both of you went over, so I guess zero, Nothing. zippy. As reported in the Wall Street Journal, probably as an excuse to make arrested development jokes, Amazon has disrupted the banana industry in Seattle. In 2015, Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos decided to set up a free banana stand on the Amazon campus. They're cheap, they don't require packaging, and they're energy 
efficient, I guess. I don't know. There's a lot of energy in a banana. So, local businesses have had to pivot their banana strategy as a result. The banana stands are overseen by bananagers or banisters uh-huh. who will top off your free snack with a new daily banana fact. And we'll probably say at some point there's always money in the banana stand. That's the arrested development joke. Gotcha. <laughs> so, how many bananas has Amazon given away since 2015? Oh my gosh. This uh-huh. is limited to the Seattle market, you said? Yeah, they only have two. But yes, so two bana- it, it started with one, they've recently had a second. 15,000. I'm going to go higher. I'm going to say they've given one away 100,000. 1.7 million. Uh, it's free. You Holy know there's going to be a ton cow. of banana tickets. Yeah. Yeah, so the local restaurants have said that people will come in and they'll bring their free banana with them and then they'll just leave. So it's like they, they people just are you know, bringing in bananas to restaurants rather than buy them from the local restaurants. Then they'll leave the peels behind or leave the bananas. So, Wow, yeah. a lot of people slipping. All right, last one. <laughs> Let's head to the toy aisle. One toy that has perhaps fared the best against the onslaught of tablets and apps is Legos. Founded in Denmark in 1932 in a small carpenter shop, it is now challenging Mattel as the second largest toy manufacturer in the world. Things weren't always clicking for Lego, according to the book Small Data, the tiny clues that uncover huge trends. Following a decline of sales in the 90s, a new CEO decided to get back to basics on why kids liked Legos. The breakthrough came when an 11-year-old German kid proudly showed them, the executives and everyone, his ratty skateboarding shoes. He had immense pride in wearing wearing the shoes that were worn in the same spots as the pros. Lego realized even in the world of tablets, kids still care deeply about mastering a skill and being able to show off evidence of their work. So they returned to their core of creating even more challenging Lego sets. I just thought that was an interesting story. According to 2014 data, how many Legos are there for every person on Earth? Oh my gosh. Uh. Well, okay, so... How many people are there on the planet? There's Seven like, billion. So, yeah, in the billions. <laughs> Don't try to take a scientific All approach right, so to this. So if we divide this you by... Have no uh, idea. My childhood collection alone was going to make really mess up the averages. I'll say 100 per person. Wow, that's a lot of Legos. <laughs> I'm going to say there's... I'm going to say there are 250 Legos per person. Bro got very close. There are 102 Legos wow. per and person. And I didn't go over. You didn't uh, go and over. I went way over. Wow. You guys tied. Other stats, there are three, three million Lego elements are made every hour at their Denmark factory, uh, or that's 52,000 a minute. And since the first minifigure, the little person, was made in 1978, four billion have since been created. That is quite something. So you guys tied. Oh, it's always so nice when there's a tie. Oh, that's <laughs> nice. Everybody gets a trophy. That's because Vince didn't know about the you know 101 rule for this game. Yeah, You're that's supposed true. to just go one dollar over bro. That's how oh, it works. of course, Price is Right rules. Yeah. <laughs> Vince, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me on. It was awesome. And if our listeners want more consumer goods, you are Tuesdays, correct? That's correct. All right, everybody, yeah, and you do. You want more, Vince? He's great. Thank you for joining us. All right, that's the show. I also want to thank Anthony, who sent a really cool postcard from Taiwan. Anthony says that he listens to all the podcasts, but we're his favorite. Oh, sorry, Vince. (laughs) (laughs) All right. The show is edited morbidly by Rick Engdahl. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody.